Welcome back to Wheel of Randy, your favorite Wheel of Randy podcast. There are four of them out there, amazingly, but uh, we, we, we know you have a choice and we thank you for choosing Wheel of Randy. A couple of announcements. I know you all are excited to, to, to hear our guest. Uh, we do not have a live show coming up, but our sister show, The Praise Down, does uh, on Saturday, October 1st. They're going to be live at plaza district festival from 5 p.m to 8 p.m that is in beautiful what do you call midtown oklahoma city uh come see the boys do an episode of a show that's much much better than ours uh we are still recording pretty irregularly here my work schedule has been nuts and i am out of town uh almost constantly so uh We'll get back to regular episodes once things get going. Uh, we do have some news. The the guest that we've been trying and trying and trying to get uh, is not going to happen. Yes, it's official. The big nasty redhead from the I Love LA video has declined to appear on our show. So why can you do folks? Please stop bothering her and we'll let her move on with her life so on and so forth but we have a very very special guest today i note some of you have been giddy about uh hearing evan we have the one and only evan schletter with us today welcome to the wheel of randy evan hello thank you for having me uh you are someone that that i've i first heard your name probably seven or eight years ago but I've known your body of work for a long time before that. I, I first heard your name uh, when Scott Ackerman was uh, promoting your Halloween album, Evan Schletter's Witching Hour. And guys, I know we don't like direct calls to action around here, but audience, you need to get on Bandcamp and buy this record. This is your Halloween soundtrack. And Evan, explain explain the witching hour to us, to conceptually uh, what it is and, and and where it came from. And I know that it has a, a long uh, history of live performances as well. Yeah, I had um for a while. I really had this plan of performing it like at every solstice, and um, basically, it's a it's a concept album that uh, kind of took on it, morphed into what it finally became um at first you know i had like the, the very first song i think i well the very first song that was written for it was a song called zombie man it wasn't really written for that that was something i did in my 20s uh with a four track and that was sitting around and then one day i, I just came up with this idea for a song about a devil doll and I oh went, i hey, love I devil it. doll oh thank you and uh, so I had, you know, and it's, the devil doll is inspired by the trilogy of terror uh, movie with Karen Black. And the third story um, really struck a chord with pretty much probably everyone my age, the, the Gen X people, you know, 
we were still the generation where everyone was watching TV and there weren't that many channels. So you would show up <laughs> yep. to school the next day and everyone would have watched the same thing. It's very different now where there's, a, you know, every niche is all over the place. It's, it's really interesting, actually. But um, so we all showed up to school going, oh, my God, did you see that movie with that crazy doll? It scared the hell out of me. And so that really stuck with me for years. And I don't know how it popped in my head. So I came up with this song and then I started thinking, well, maybe I'll do a little Halloween EP, like five songs. And I started getting stuff together. And the more I started writing, I realized I wanted to do something bigger and more tied together. And I made this concept album. And one of the things I wanted to do was just explore all the fun, different types of fun, spooky stuff like haunted mansion type influence but also like the old 50s uh the 50s inspired halloween songs you know yeah some of some of the harmonies on that, that kind of stuff some of the harmonies on that reminded me of the old uh wonderful world of disney halloween specials oh yeah <laughs> yeah and uh definitely uh the disney haunted mansion ride was a big influence although I, what i realized is mine actually became uh, kind of, ooh, I heard a little fever. I was, that was weird. Um, mine became sort of more of a Wicca-ish thing. Like the thing about the Haunted Mansion is it's very much a Haunted Mansion. So you've got mm -hmm. like Gothic architecture and all that stuff that you respond to. Mine is more uh, about kind of nature in the woods and it centers on a um, a haunted lake that has a horrible history of, of horrible things being done to people and injustices. And that's another thing I like in horror is like the EC comics mode of, you know, righteous vengeance. There's always yeah. a moralistic quality in those, you know, it's like ghoulish and awful, but it's also like the people doing the awful things are getting revenge usually on someone who did something really horrible. Yeah. So, uh, so there's a little bit of that in it. And then um, after a while I realized, you know, I think I should not, sing all these songs myself and I should get my friends to do them and I started picturing you know Paul Tompkins doing Devil Doll I pictured Jill Sobiel doing um, some things to know about monsters and uh, and it just bit by bit came together and then um, it's exactly there's there's a it starts with a clock chime midnight and then it ends at one and if you you can literally set your watch to it i got that oh my on. gosh i haven't it's, realized it's that. exactly an hour like digitally as long as you have zero time between the tracks it's different if you import the files and then you and it automatically does two seconds between them it'll throw it off but uh, you know if you get like the cd and play the cd through it'll be exactly one hour from when the first chime to the last chime hits there's a track called 13 that's just kind of unnamed but it's 13 and it's exactly 13 seconds long um so that's the kind of stuff and and if i had done it on vinyl i absolutely would have done i had this idea for some backwards messages and i wanted to sort of turn the uh satanic message on its head and um and make make it sound really ghoulish as it's going backwards but when you play it backwards it's all like the golden rule and be nice to people <laughs> you know there, there was a, a an old bloom county gag where they did that where oh really yeah the, the, <laughs> you, so you played there backwards and it said ties ties oh that's funny 
Um, I did do, I was in a punk band called uh, Quick Way, and we actually did a backwards message on this record we did that was one of the, it's the stupidest backward, it's so stupid, hopefully it makes people laugh if you ever get it, but um, it's clear as day, the record ends and you hear this little, and then if you turn your record backwards, um, and it makes it better when you do it by hand because you hear it warbling, you know. It's and it clear as day. It's our guitarist Jules going, "Hey man, did you buy this record just to scratch it? You're gonna ruin your stylus, you idiot." That's what the message is. <laughs> so dumb. <laughs> uh, but I figured we could improve on that backwards message and do some actual. Um, you know, I have this view with horror. And like witches, like in, in the witching hour, the witches are the good guys. There's, okay. a, there's a line in one of the songs, um, 13 women cured folks of the fever in a most ungrateful town. Uh, and basically they get killed. They get murdered for curing everybody because everyone thinks they're witches. You know, they get tied to stones and drowned. Um, so it's like a Salem witch trial kind of thing. And uh, part of the concept is like, there's a warlock who sees all this going, well, if you're going to accuse them of being witches, I might as well make them witches and give them my powers, you know. <laughs> um, so, uh, but it's also just trying to be fun and, you know, kind of circling it back to be related to Randy Newman. Um, he's such a great writer of music that's funny, but that's not comedy. Right. right, like like short people is not in the comedy section, but it's funny. So that's kind of where I've always tried to be before I was actually involved in comedy. And um, like it's it was never you know, Witching Hour is not meant to be like. I mean, it is a novelty record to a big degree, but uh, it's like an ode to novelty records. But it it's uh, it's you know. No, I didn't really think of it as a comedy record. I, mean, I definitely wanted it to be fun and funny, but, um, and and that's the way a lot of Randy Newman stuff is. It's he's got such a great sense of humor, and it's so like just smart and and fun, and uh, and it makes you read in things. It's ambiguous, and that's kind of witching hour too. Like I'm spelling out the story more clearly than like a lot of people may not notice. There's a song called uh, "The Legend of Laguna Lock Lake." And that's what ties the whole record together. If you listen to it, it's sort of there's the idea. It's it's also inspired by um, the Spoon River Anthology. I think right. it's yeah. Master, Masters. Mm -hmm. It's a book of poetry where each poem is uh, an epitaph in a graveyard for the small town. And by reading the epitaphs of everybody, you sort of get all the inside scoop of everything that's been going on in the town and all the relationships of the people. And it's really it's really a neat book. Um, so I was kind of thinking of that also when I made that record. You mentioned your, your comedy background, uh, and I, I don't know, for, for, for people my age and a, a little younger, Mr. Show was just so enormously influential. I, I, I heard one person call it the Velvet Underground of alt comedy. <laughs> I love that. When you were working on that, did, did everyone realize how special it was? You know, I do, 
kind of yes and no. I think, I mean, like, I definitely felt that way because, like, they did four episodes before I started working on it, and I was at one of the tapings. Um, so just being an audience member uh, for, I can't remember which number it is, but the one with the Not Whole musical, I was in the audience for that. Oh, time. okay. Okay. And uh, I was like, this is as good, this is like a fully American Monty Python. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, because it, the way they linked things, but also I loved like the set design and just the feel. It was so like American, but uh, uh, it was it was like American Monty Python, not in imitating Monty Python, but but like, and I just saw that with it, you know, and just from that one taping, it was just like pretty blown away. So I did feel like it was really good, but but that didn't mean that we thought that it was like going to be recognized by others that way and certainly while it was on you know it yeah yeah it didn't it's... really get much traction i think it was we we finally got a billboard in the last season like one billboard in town oh. <laughs> there was like no promotion they moved it around on the schedule and we're like hey let's kick it out of the way so that show real sex can take that slot and they didn't tell anybody <laughs> so people were like oh i thought it was on fridays and now it's not okay whatever so it but i'm i'm really thrilled to see that it has you know hung in there for people and and it it gets recognized like that i i do think the writing on that show was amazing and i feel very grateful that i was able to have that job and uh it was great people to work with and it was great material and it was a huge challenge for me first that was my uh first show i had done a little bit before that you know like a theme and some small things but that was the first time being on a show where it's like you're doing all the music here's you know the scripts and there's a ton of work and get on it <laughs> and uh trying to uh keep up with all of it with a breakneck schedule and uh, little experience at the time and everything. So um, it was a very and exciting time. I assume that's where you and Paul F. Tompkins first connected. Well, weirdly, we, not weirdly, but interestingly, maybe, uh, we had actually worked together before either of us worked on Mr. Show. So those first four, I think he was at tapings too for those first four we we were all kind of there was like this scene around the diamond club which was a club in los angeles where this alternative comedy scene was kind of blossoming and this particular group of people and um so eventually uh paul Tompkins and jay johnston did their own show there and they had me do their music and so i was working with them on that and i think bob and dave saw that show and those guys were super funny and great writers and that show was really fun and um and actually at that time i had i was desperate for money i was like catering and um i got a job drumming in alaska so i was about to leave town for months and um i had done a couple cues for bob and dave for the live shows they were doing they had done their first four episodes and then they were waiting for hbo to decide whether they were going to pick them up for more and they were doing these live shows to workshop material and they had me do some music for that um but i had no idea i, I had no idea that i would ever work on it because i thought they were already taken care of with music you know um so i let them know oh you know i'm gonna be going to alaska 
And they're like, what? We wanted you to work on the show. I'm like, what? <laughs> so I went and canceled the gig, and it was kind of scary and risky because I needed money, and they didn't know if they were getting picked up for sure. So it could have been, if they didn't get picked up, I would have been in big trouble. Um, but uh, obviously it worked out. But yeah, uh, sorry, to, sorry to go on such a tangent there. Yeah, that's um, fine. But uh, yeah, but Paul and I knew each other beforehand, had worked together beforehand, and we started working on Mr. Show the same year, the second season. Okay. We were part of the, the kind of new crop of people they hired in starting season two. Um, so uh, yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. I, uh, it, you, you've done so much with, 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 with Paul. Uh, are, are you involved in, in every Spontaneous Nation uh, episode? I believe so. I don't think I ever missed one. I don't think so. I think I'm on and every single one. I, I, I think it's, I, yeah, going back to Randy Newman, and Evan, in some episodes, Randy barely gets mentioned. So. <laughs> <laughs> don't think that you're going down a tangent. Okay, but, yeah, I start getting self-conscious. Am I ruining this podcast? I'm here to... <laughs> I, the, this podcast cannot be ruined. I guarantee you that. <laughs> Uh, oh, we'll but, see about that. I'm rolling up my sleeves. No. <laughs> just the level of, of musical improvisation that, that goes on with that uh, is something that, that is so foreign to me. Uh, you know, I, not to make this about me, but you know, I'm, I'm an intermediate uh, piano player. I was really good when I was 19, but, you know, it's been 30 years and, you know, I, I, I hold my own, but, I play with fear and <laughs> any little thing that, that, that throws things off uh, and, and the whole thing falls apart. So just, just listening to you adjust uh, to, to uh, what's going on in, in the show is, is something that, 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 uh, that I really admire. And it, it's something that, that it's reminiscent of, of Randy too. I, I don't know if you know this story, but when he played at Newport last year, have you heard the story? No. Uh, he, he was playing at Newport and some asshole in a yacht right off of stage was just blaring his horn Oh, during God. one of the songs. And Randy, on the off the cuff, changed the key to match this horn. I love that. And, you know, he, he's talked a lot about how, you know, uh, you can leave your hat on. If you just put it in the right key, he would have had a hit with it. And he'll <laughs> he'll play it both ways. And his mumbly version, and then he'll play the Joe Cocker version. Say, See, all I had to do was change that, change that key. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's wonderful. Man, I, that's... I, uh... He is such an amazing, uh, I love, I love his interviews. That's the thing too. It's just, you know, he's such a funny person and he, he's just fun to listen to when I, when you hear interviews and it's fun reading what he says. Um, I, uh, I found a little quote when I was looking into the song we're going to be talking about. I, I found uh -huh. a fun quote from him from an AV club interview that I thought was really, you know, just interesting quote. So, um, 
the song we're going to be talking about is uh, So Long Dad, which is off. That's his first record, right? Right. Uh, which is just called Randy Newman, right? And so I don't know if you saw this quote. You, I'm sure you must have seen that. that no, I don't know. When this. it came out. Um, uh -uh. Phillips. I've got my little piece of paper I printed out. Uh, so he says, and he's just talking about the first album in general, not that song in specific, but he says, it's like I'd never heard the Rolling Stones. I thought you could move things along just with the orchestra, that it was somehow cheating to use drums. What Van Dyke and I and Harry Nielsen to some degree were doing, it was like a branch of Homo sapiens that didn't become Homo sapiens, Homo erectus. I just think that is such a great... <laughs> Quote. And when you listen to that record, it t I can see where he's coming from, why he's analyzing it that way. It's like it's not really a rock and roll record, but it's not, it's not. not a rock and roll record either. Yeah, and it's is it experimental? Uh, or is it not? Uh, you know, you, you can can clearly see you know Van Dyke's influence in it, but the, yeah, that first record is so hard for people to get into. Uh, yeah, and I and uh, and I and I, I mean I can understand that, and at the same time, I mean that's that that's the weird thing. It's like it's not so out there that it becomes like another one of my favorite bands, The Residents, talk about experimental. They're so weird that most people would hate it, and then there's going to be that core group that are like, "This is the best thing ever." <laughs> um, and so it's not that weird. It's still, you know, accessible. And it's still got very sort of traditional music within it. And yet uh, it's this trying to push pop songwriting into interesting new directions, which I think is, it is. It's, it's sort of when you think of it, if you, if you treat musicians as an animal and you're looking at it kind of from a scientist, like, you know, different species and genus and, you know, classification schemes and all that, like this is, it is, he, his analysis is pretty interesting because it is, it's, it, it doesn't, you know, certain things are very squarely in their class. This is a country album. This is a heavy metal album. This is a gothic metal album, you know, whatever subspecies. Mm -hmm. This is sort of like I don't know where you'd put it exactly. It's a it's it's Randy Newman, you know. It's it's pretty much. Um. So, uh, just his way of being able to see himself that way and have a sense of humor about it, and um, but his and but also just his main thing that I see recurring in so many interviews is he just has very. He holds himself to a high standard. He just wants to do good work. And I just respect that so much. Right. That, that yeah, it's really I, about just trying to do something interesting and trying to keep good and keep getting better. And I, I think sometimes people wonder, why, why does he wait nine, ten years between albums? Uh, you know, it's because the studio is not pressuring him to do it. When he's ready, he's ready. Yeah, and also I think, um, I think since he started doing films, that makes like a lot of sense. Like I can, I can only imagine. It, let, let me get your perspective on that because I, I can only imagine that takes up just an enormous amount of time. Any kind of scoring, uh, kind of walk us through the process of, of that. How, wh what makes it so time consuming? Well, what happens is is you know it's a lot of work to do music for, I and mean, I'm sure on his level especially. I mean. 
you look at those Pixar movies, there's music throughout. That's oh, a lot constant. of music to yeah. write. Um, it's just a ton of music to write, and you're doing it to picture, so it's very specific, and it's time-consuming. And, um, and it's fatiguing, too. So, like, um, you know, he's, I, you know, an A-list composer. I'd be, like, on the E-list, probably. <laughs> um, but even on the E-list, like, Witching Hour took me years to be able to get that out. I was really shooting for, like, Halloween uh, 20, uh, 2007, and it ended up coming out a whole year later because I just couldn't quite do it because, you know, all my own work uh you know my own records and i did a podcast for a while um it all ends up getting done like at three in the morning because the 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 work i got to do for a living it just takes Mm -hmm. up all your time and and all your best energy so it doesn't surprise me that especially now he takes years between albums because you know look how many movies he's doing and and those take months and months each one you know, so, you know, depending on the project, you can get involved very early and there's a lot of meetings. Maybe you get, you know, with Mr. Show, I used to go to like the table reads and everything to get, you know, so very clear on what's going on with each episode. And um, sometimes it's not like that. But uh, I think on his level, I'm sure he gets brought in early writing songs early because, they, you know, especially if they're going to sing them in the movie, they got to have that. Before, way before they even cut the movie. They need to be oh, able yeah, to yeah. record it and then animate to it. So he's starting at that point. There's all that work. Then the scoring process itself. And then he's juggling a bunch of other movies. So that just, that's your job and you're doing that every day. So I, I can't imagine how much time he, a guy like that must have to just write his own records. Again, for me, working on a bunch of little cable shows and stuff, uh, you know, my free time to work on my own material is, you know, the literally the witching hour, depending on how you define it. It can either be midnight or three in the morning. That's another uh, sort of d- destined witching hour uh, uh, time. Um, I, 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 I've learned to, to master the uh, delayed send email. Because I have so many things that I've finished at three. It's like, I can't send this at three. I can't let people know I'm doing this. (laughs) So I time it to send it uh, at 7.30. Very respectable early morning situation. I've got probably some people who think I'm an early riser, but they don't realize I was just going to bed right then. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we're going to double back to to uh so long dad but uh my my daughter would murder me if we didn't talk spongebob for a little bit ah Uh, (laughs) because we've spent 20 years obliquely trading spongebob references uh, that go over uh, her mom's head Uh, (laughs) and you know i'm sure that there are things that that you uh, have done that worked very very hard on that you're very, very proud of. And, and so I, I hate to say it in this way, but to me, you're the guy who wrote, I wrote this, that horrible song that Patrick <laughs> wrote. Yes. I, uh... I have, I, I, my daughter and I have never laughed more than, than when <laughs> we hear that 
recording of, of, of Twinkle Twinkle Patrick Star. And, and we had just gotten TiVo when that came out. And ah. so it was our first time to rewind and replay. And I know it, it's a silly little thing on your part, but it just meant the world to us. Oh, well, I really appreciate that. That actually is one of my, my favorite episodes that, that I did something for because uh, SpongeBob's an interesting thing. Um, they are, they're very special. I, I, you know, I've been doing this now for, you know, well over 20 years. And I got to tell you, you know, usually like when you're trying to get a job, you'll, you'll do spec recordings and, you know, you, you do all this work and sometimes they'll even give you notes and you come back for a second round and then they ghost you. You never hear right. them again. Right. Uh-huh. SpongeBob is one of the very few people who didn't do that. So what happened with me was I got called to do demos to try to get the job being the composer for the show when it very first started, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I found out years later that they ended up not actually hiring a regular composer. They decided they wanted to use library music and not actually just have a composer, not do the Carl Stalling type approach where it's all original music, but use the library. I think their decision was based on two things. One of them, it was sort of the same reasoning that Monty Python did when they were making Holy Grail. And um, they had, uh, I haven't slept, so it's it's Neil Innes, right? Isn't that the guy who did their their stuff? Hmm, I don't know. And the Ruddles. Um, he had he was going to be doing the music, but they knew they need they they wanted stuff that had like full or they didn't have any you know the money for like a full orchestra, right? Um, they wanted bigger budget sounding stuff, and so like that great track from the Holy Grail that bum 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 yeah bum, yeah yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. that's from a music library, and so what? a lot of yeah that wasn't composed for that movie that's from a music library, so they used music library to to for that kind of material where it gives you that big gravitas, you know, full orchestra vibe. So I think part of it was uh, they wanted to be able to do that, but also it was the energy of the character of SpongeBob. He's so scattered that they wanted to evoke all these different styles. Um, And there is a lot of original music on it, of course, not just the songs. I mean, they had, I think it was the Blue Hawaiians gave them a bunch of stuff. And um, there are these guys that, uh, there's a a bunch of different pockets of people that that work on different music for it. But there's no one like scoring to picture. It's all the music editors really putting it all together. Um, So... uh, but yeah, it, it's a it's a great show, and it's another one I feel really lucky for. Um, it what's interesting with that show is it, it's not like well with Mister Show it was like you're on this show, we hire you for the season, and that's it. This is your job. SpongeBob, I get called for songs here and there, and it's been going since two thousand two. So t- some seasons there's a ton of them, and sometimes not as much. But it's mm-hmm. kind of like. You know, I wish I had like a SpongeBob shaped bat phone. It's like that. It's like (laughs) phone rings and you get to do something. But now I I don't know how many I've done. It's got to be like more than 40. I've I've got done a lot of songs for them. Um, And uh, it's really fun. And they're just great people to work for. Um, They they just stand out uh, in the crowd of so many other shows in terms of just 
the quality of people and the way it is doing business with them is is yeah is... I, I i figured they had to be that way because for them to say uh, let's use pantera on this episode mm-hmm. i mean who else would do that right <laughs> right oh. okay uh, no. so yeah that's a lot of and 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 that episode i learned from the episode you're referring to with the the patrick song I didn't know that this was a thing. The writers of the show turned me on to this concept that that's a real thing, that people, that was a thing. You could, There were these ads in magazines of like, turn your poetry into records. You'd send them the poem, just like they did in that episode. I, I remember uh, radio ads on Casey Kasem for that. Ah. Send us your girlfriend's name and we'll write her a song. Right, yeah. So these guys would, you know, you'd give them some money, send them your poetry or whatever that set it to music for you and and press uh, a little single I guess they had like the vinyl pressing machine and you know you get a record with your with your lyrics on it oh my um, god okay I've got I've got two complete different tangents I've got to, to do that first of all I love the way that that band is drawn in that episode because they could not look more miserable yes <laughs> yes that's like it's you know that's one of those ones where it's got like uh what is it what there's the joke where it just cuts to the graveyard and they're all dead <laughs> we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna finish this song if it kills us yeah yeah that's what it, <laughs> um so sorry i thought i turned my but, but the other thing and i i, I just it, it's just occurred to me this is probably an older business than then we remember because I, I remember uh, in uh, inside Lewin Davis, he as a kid cut a record for his parents, and uh, we we looked it up, and it was it was an actual company that that would burn. I, that's not the right word, but that would cut one record for you. Uh, <laughs> So I guess there's always been this kind of vanity publishing out there. Yeah, I think weren't there places like you could go and you could also like sing, kind of do a karaoke thing and walk out with a single. You like know, they'd have, that's they'd how press yeah. it in the back room. You know, yeah, uh, Elvis did that for his mom. Oh, it's apparently his first recording. Oh, <laughs> and uh, Sam Phillips somehow stumbled onto that. So yeah, I guess that's always been there. I'd love to know if on that very first uh, recording, does he do the, uh, hey, let's get real gone with it now, <laughs> whatever he does in the sun sessions. Hey, Squire. <laughs> uh, okay, so long, Dad. So uh, long, Dad, yes. I what want people... Song? It, it, it is... Uh, We've got to talk about the composition, but we've got to talk about the lyrics. The, the composition on this is just all over the place. Yeah, it is. This is a. It's such a weird. This song is like the the thing that's so great about Randy Newman is he, especially like I think it seems to me like the earlier years he wrote a lot of these like really short songs. And there's another interview where he was like, you know. Once you've said it, you've said it. You don't need to belabor it. You know, he's he's just get to the point and do it. You know, I just love that attitude, too, of like, there's no need to make it an album side. 
Um, but uh, this is like, by all rights, a ditty. I mean, it's two minutes. That is like a ditty. But it's e so even complex. with that first forty-five seconds that just drags and drags. It's two minutes. Yeah, yeah. It's like wow. two minutes, maybe two minutes and seven seconds or something. But it's it's like it's super short. Well, and to, to be to be fair, the, the 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 boy wants to get out of there. Yeah, <laughs> he he has he has paid his dad tribute, and he's got places to be. Yeah, he's got. Well, what's interesting is, so the first thing when I first heard this song, of course, it reminded me of Cats in the Cradle, right? It's yeah. kind of like the opposite viewpoint. Cats in the Cradle is from the dad's point of view, mm -hmm. and um, in a way, they're dealing with the same issue, but they're kind of not. Or maybe I should say that this one is doing it in a much more nuanced way. Cats in the Cradle is just. Everyone knows that song. It's, you know, mm. pay attention to your kids. They grow up fast and it'll be too late if you don't pay attention to them, you know? Right. Very simple. And then if you didn't pay attention to them, don't expect them to pay attention to you. Don't expect them to come back and visit if you didn't spend time playing ball with them. You know, what goes around comes around. And, right. you know, so, uh, and, you know, that, will bring a tear to your eye and all that stuff, right? But it's actually a very simplistic view. This song is very nuanced because, okay, again, in Cats in the Cradle, you know what is happening. Dad didn't pay enough attention to the kid, so the kid, it's not even like he's getting revenge or anything. It's just like right, no just... relationship was built there, so there's no relationship. So the kid right. goes off and does his life, and dad's not important because kid wasn't important enough to dad to make a relationship work was taking over whatever it is right mm -hmm. but in this song you don't know if that's really the case it's not well, like the, there you know there, I mean? there are clues um he doesn't know uh if his dad still has the same job or not right so they haven't been they are definitely estranged not necessarily right. angry at each other because no, that's the no, weird thing because he's like happy to see him. Yeah. And it's this double-edged like thing of it's friendly. Oh, my good old dad. But at the same time, it's like, oh, yeah, come visit anytime. I'm like, Call first. Call first. <laughs> you know, all that. <laughs> um, and also it's all, you know, you could read in sort of a... a kind of almost like a side eye of like you're still working at the same place like you haven't changed at all you don't grow as a person <laughs> you know you're just this past in a in a capsule that's just changeless and i'm moving on with bigger and better things and there's no place for you in my life because you're just the dude who polishes the floor all day and works at a drugstore right um, and you know he he works uh I, he lives on the wrong side of town uh-huh uh, I, I always assume Chicago when he talks about the South Side scenery just not being quaint anymore. But you have to go up the stairs and down the hallway to his right. dad's place. So he's, I always picture he's in this kind of dingy little apartment. Right, right. And how long has he been there? What's happened? What's going on here? Right. And, and of course, there's no mention of mom. No. So you don't know if it's you know, 
is this the the doghouse that dad got kicked out to and <laughs> stayed there ever since? Or, you know, um, and I love all that ambiguity about it. And yeah. and because, you know, you could read in various ways. Like it's easy to, you know, again, with Cats in the Cradle as a backdrop, it's very easy to just assume, you know, this is all because dad. But maybe this kid's the one. Maybe dad was nice and did everything he could. And the kid's like, I don't give a shit. <laughs> doesn't, you know, maybe because it's open ended enough that it doesn't spell it out for you to know what the relationship is, why they're so estranged. Maybe they're maybe neither of the I, I kind of read it as it's just a natural estrangement because of our culture, really. It's that, huh. you know, it's not necessarily that dad did anything wrong or that he did anything wrong. It's just the way things go. You know, I got to go, you know, now that I'm done with school, I'm going to go get a job. Hey, I met a girl. I'm going to go live with her. I'm going to go do other things. I don't have time to deal with, you know, you and, you know, and, and he obviously if dad's and, working at the drugstore, it's not he's not rich. Like you say, he's living in the little schleppy apartment. So, you know, that life is working and working yeah. and to keep working and working. Um, and so yeah, you, you mentioned side eye. Uh, we, we, we have that cheerful little line. Uh, I hope you like her. But if you don't, that's OK, too. Yeah, it's like I, that, I can't tell if he's dismissing him or if this is just a cheerfully confident young man. It's confident. And at the same time, there's something very sad about it because he doesn't give a shit what his dad thinks. Yeah. And as a parent, I'm you know, now I'm a parent and uh, and, you know, I would want my kids to value my opinion. They don't have to. I understand that. But you would hope that they would you would hope that it would be meaningful what you say and in this situation it's like whatever i don't give a shit really you know how you know good old dad same as usual doesn't really care doesn't you know it's like it's good to see every once in a while it's all very just sort of surface level we'll be polite to each other but there's really no relationship there and yeah. uh it, it's and now the other thing, too, is, you know, there's a bunch of different versions. Um, the first released version is the Manfred Mann version, which is I, just, I was bring I was going to bring up the Manfred Mann version. Yeah, that came out. Uh, I did my little homework here. So 1967, they came out with the single of this. OK. Then 1968 is when Randy Newman released this record. Oh his my gosh. And then Nielsen did a cover of it in 1970. And actually, the way Nielsen's cover is, is kind of like Randy Newman's uh, live version, which is just him at the piano. Right. And what's uh, interesting... The, the only difference is that that live version, he cuts it off so short, and Nielsen does this lovely fade out. Yes. Uh, yes. But uh, other than that... But uh, this man for... Man, I, folks, stop listening to this podcast and go listen to Manfred Mann's version of "So Long, Dad," and you'll 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 have to check to see if you're if you have a fever because it's not the same song. It is so weirdly different, and also there's a great video where they're like walking around the soundstage while they're singing yes. it. They're just like all waltzing along, singing it, and 
It is. It is. I found it really interesting because so, you know, that's the first as far as I know, that's the first public exposure to, of that song to the world. Right. Mm, right. Um, and it's like this fun, psychedelic. And it seems like what they're grabbing onto, that band is just grabbing onto. Like, Look, it has all these weird changes and it goes all over. It's like a trip, you know? So uh-huh. we're going to treat it like a psychedelic trip. You don't know where it's going to go next. Whoa. And, uh, and, and, it, and they really kind of play up the sort of Tin Pan Alley-ness of, yes. of that, you know? And, and when, when Randy Newman does it solo, you know, obviously the piano is kind of doing that kind of... I wouldn't call it ragtimey, but that tin pan it's alley kind of. Yeah. I guess I guess it is, you know, and um, it's got a little bit of that to it. But the original album version has that string arrangement that is sad. Oh, it's so sad. just heartbreaking. It's got just enough sort of tension and discordant stuff going on, and then this lilting like da 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 dee da da boop a doo happening, <laughs> while this sad string arrangement's going on. It really has, it packs a ton of nuance into two minutes. It's like, it's such a little gem, and it's it, and that's what kind of blew me away. It's like again, by all rights, a ditty, two minute little like interesting thing. But it really, it's like, what is your relationship to your parents? Do you need to have a relationship to your parents or your children? Like who's, you know, I I would assume since he wrote it when he was younger, he's definitely, of course, from the kids, the adult child's point of view. That's what it's from. Again, I can't help but have it couched by having children that are just heading towards adulthood now, you know. Um, well, you know, Randy has written song after song after song that's uh, strained father-son dynamic. Yeah. Uh, and then then we have My Country, which comes out in the late 90s, that's basically the response song to So Long, Dad. Uh, that My Country talks about the kids come over, uh, I love it when they're here, uh, but I'm always kind of glad when they leave. <laughs> Same sentiment as this. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, that's really... It, it, uh... So I, I don't know if it's just Randy stays the same or if he's saying, you know, fathers become sons, sons become fathers, and that's the way it goes. I mean, again, it's basically cats in the cradle just with more nuance. And, yeah. and more ambiguity, and and, uh, and and someone who's who's more at peace with it, <laughs> right? And has a He's sense like, of humor I, I about it. I don't need my kids around. I've got a great big TV. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and one of the things too that I think, is, well, Cats in the Cradle makes it very clear. I think there's sort of a, uh, you know, a work ethic that takes you away from your family, right? And, you know, knowing the Newman family, talk about, you know, high achievers. I mean, yeah, when, 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 when his dad decided to become a doctor, he's almost disowned by the family. Right, right. How dare you only become a doctor? Yeah. I mean, it's it's an amazing family. And um, and it's weird to see, like, to, to have this, you know, 
so much talent in one sort of lineage. And yet, like you say, all these songs about not not connecting with your family. Um, it's it's. And I, I don't know, it's just there's so many things that I like. about. I mean, again, I love the string arranging on that track, first of all, yeah. just just from an arrangement perspective. It's just beautiful string writing and um, the lyrics are great. It's got just enough humor. It's got that weird push and pull between the sort of upbeat, you know, like what Manford Mann did, but with this underlying kind of seediness, like you meant, you know, yeah. mentioning. It's not the, quite the, menace, but yeah, yeah. yeah. You can really picture like the dilapidated building that dad is in and it's like, yeah, we're not going to be staying here, dad. And, and you don't know, is it is it like because you don't want to be around him or is it because I don't want to sleep on that filthy couch and there was mice in there last time or, you know, you know who knows what what the situation now, is. Now, here's something I've wondered about. The Manford Man version has an extra verse. Oh, and I'm wondering, did they throw that in, or is that something that. that Randy wrote? But the extra verse is basically, yeah, I've met a girl. Uh, her dad's a banker. I'm going to try my hand at that. Oh, right. I wonder. So, that's a good question. If they, so if... I, I that that would would turn it. That would give credence to the I'm not sticking around this neighborhood. Yeah, um, yeah. If. Uh, I'm sure the Randy super fans will let me know if who wrote that extra verse. I'll get angry emails here. And I'll pass those along to you. Once <laughs> I would be interested to know. Uh, uh, some people think I have no business running this show. <laughs> well, you know, boy, I guess I'll get you in more trouble because I do not consider myself by any stretch an expert on Randy. You know what I do? Uh, experts fan. are no longer welcome on this show. Hey, I this find them America tiresome. We don't do experts anymore. <laughs> that went, that went this out is about Jimmy how Carter. the song affects you. <laughs> you just need to have a passing basic knowledge almost, and you're good in our <laughs> <Well>. culture now. <laughs> you're an elitist if you know too much. Who wants to listen to people who know everything? Yeah. I, <laughs> I'm being sarcastic, it, people. I know. Well, it, 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 I I, I I tell people that that one of the the great contributions that, that Randy has is when people listen to him, it encourages them. They go, "Yeah, I can sing that well. Yeah, I'll get out there and take a shot." <laughs> that that's an interesting uh, point with that too. I I remember um, I I had someone give a very backhanded compliment. One of my idols has always been Ennio Morricone. Right. Oh, yeah. And there was a I, a I have listened to the mission. I don't know how many times. Oh, yeah. That that was a very uh, for me. I had been collecting his stuff since I was like 12. Mm. And before the mission came out, I had a big, you know, I was the I was the nerd that would go the, back in the old days when the record stores would have like a soundtrack section. And it was all just alphabetical by movie title. And you would just have to, okay, I'm starting at the A's, here I go. And I'd go all the way through the whole damn thing, all the way A to Z to see if there's anything interesting. I was a soundtrack nerd. Uh -huh. And um, Ennio Morricone just, just, you know, my head would explode. And I would, and I would, uh, and, and, but I started to realize, okay, there's the spaghetti Western world, which is only about, I don't know, maybe a 
not even a quarter of what he did. And then he did all these giallo horror movies, and that's like a genre you can see him using the same tricks in. Then he did all these like weird Italian sex comedies that had like this loungy thing. Anyway, so you'd start to, what I loved about him is he had a bunch of different styles, but it all sounded like him. So, but by that point, I had, you know, I'd get a new record. I'd go, oh, this one's like that one, and that one's like that one, and that one's like that one. Okay, cool. I like it. But I kind of thought I had had all the bases covered. And then the mission comes out. And it's like, what? It's like a whole new door opens of Morricone style and genre and and like a whole new way. Like, like I liked The Untouchables a lot, but like the opening theme, you can compare it to Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down. That da-da-dun, da-dun, da-da-dun. That's, you know, he did that in a lot of different movies, different mm-hmm. versions of it. The Untouchables is a great version of that. But when the mission came out, it was like, what, what universe did this come from? This is so great. I saw that He made movie. the oboe. Cool. Yeah. And I'm one of the few people who actually likes that movie. Um, I saw it five times in the theater when it was out because I knew it wasn't going to last long because people weren't liking it. I really loved that movie. I loved it. It's beautiful. I love what it has to say. I think it's it's still relevant today as as we're trying to grapple with past history and that movie really kind of explains colonialism very well yeah um I, when, when, it's got its flaws when, but it's still really great when i saw avatar i was like I, i've seen this before right. <laughs> this is just the mission <laughs> right right pretty much yeah uh the mission how, how, in how'd, 3D. We on, how'd we get on to morricone um oh because uh, someone was saying about how you were you were making the point that you would you could listen to Randy Newman and his voice sounds like a voice that you can go well maybe I could sing like that because he he's not yeah. you know certain singers like my friend Grant Lee Phillips you listen to his voice and you just go well I could never do that he's just a Stradivarius his vocal cords are just a Stradivarius he's just got a beautiful sounding voice you know you're not going to sound like that unless you're lucky, right? Right. So with Morricone, there was a it was a show I was working on and the mixer and I started getting into, you know, he, he you know, was kind of contrary when it came to Morricone. He he was like John Williams is the best and that's it. And can't can't disagree with that to a lot of degree, but um and I said, "Well, what I love about Morricone is like he used instruments and I was like he inspired me. I was like I could do that." And he goes, "Exactly." And it's the same point that you're saying with with what people might think with Randy Newman, like oh, a, a regular guy with a with a voice that's not you know, put it in the top ten voices of all time, can still do great stuff. And and so he was making that point that the that Morricone's writing is more simplistic. So a guy like me could go like, hey, I could do that. But I look at a John Williams score and go like, nah, I can't. That's be like, the Harry Potter. I'm real good. At I look at that and go, it. how the fuck yeah. do you write that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you know, it's because so, the Morricone stuff. There was a lot of sort of folk influence, especially in the westerns, and it's not right. overly complicated. And um, so it has that same potential. I think that's that's where the comparison comes in. <laughs> if assuming I'm getting the point that you're making right. <laughs> yes. Yes. Exactly. Uh, Oh, Evan, I got two more questions for you. I know you're a super busy guy, but let let, let, let me throw these two out. First mm-hmm. of all, uh, it is Randy Knight at karaoke. 
what Randy Newman song are you are you singing? Oh, you know, probably short people. All right, that it's a crowd, please. It was the first one for me, and I was the shortest kid in my class. So okay, and I got teased, and then that song came on the radio, and I had the full kid reaction to like, "What the fuck is he?" <laughs> oh, I get it. He's kidding. <laughs> That's such a relief. I've heard so many people say that it made their bullying worse. So I'm so glad that you got it. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. And um, and I was like, what a weird song. <laughs> it was just like such a weird, out of left field kind of subject matter. Um, so that was the first thing. And uh, yeah, so that's the one I would do. Maybe uh, maybe I Love L.A. because I did... I did do a parody of um, I Love L.A. Oh, I've done I, a parody of I Love L.A. too. We've got a very strange thing in common. Tell me about yours. Mine was, I got to do a parody of a parody of it. I did a version of, for the for the uh, mystery show, the ill-fated mystery show movie Run, Ronnie, Run, uh-huh. there is a I, uh, I Loathe L.A., <laughs> as done by Daffy Mal Yinkle Yankle. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I did that. I did the, 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 the Weird Al, the parody of Weird Al doing a parody of I Love L.A. <laughs> so, <laughs> Question number two. I hear you are very handy with the theremin. Oh, yes, yes. I have... I, I, I want to hear about that, but before I forget, mm -hmm. I heard a rumor that Good Vibrations does not actually use a theorem. That is correct. It uses what's called a tannerin, which is similar technology, and um, but unlike the theremin where you're literally not touching anything, uh -huh. the tannerin has like a little piece that you're sliding. It's almost like, imagine a, a guitar neck but it's totally flat and it doesn't have strings obviously. And so you got like this little piece of metal and you can slide it back and forth, but it, it's, it's similar technology of how it works to generate the sound. And, and um, I think the electronics are similar, but instead of you just floating out in the air, uh, you actually have like, you know, you can be more accurate because when your hand is making contact, you're steady. The hardest thing about the theremin is you gotta stay still. And you realize when you breathe, you move. So if you're standing mm. there trying to hold a note and you're breathing, your note is gonna waver unless you start developing techniques to sort of, you know, not let the movement go all the way to your hand or your fingers. You have to, it's an exercise in stillness to make to make that thing work. Wow. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, it's a it's a tannerin, which is very similar, but um, and those are very hard to find. Um, I'm friends with Probin Gregory, who who plays that part on the new version from the Brian Wilson's finally released Smile record. Love that record. Um, Probin, little trivia. Probin is, of course, all over that record, and he's doing that part uh, on an actual tannerin that I think he had to search the universe for to get a real one and he's one of those guys who loves to get his authentic instruments and everything mm -hmm. he's also on my witching hour record so, really yeah um 
And uh, oh, I you know what? There's another Brian Wilson connection uh, to my <laughs> to my Witching Hour record. It's a really weird connection. Uh, uh, so as I mentioned to you, I had, um, you know, I was, I was originally going to just do it as a little EP, and then I, I started thinking of having friends sing on it. And that's why, you know, it's got Paul Tompkins and Tom Kenny and a bunch of different people on it. Um, I had a dream. Uh, my older sister was married to this guy who really reminded me of Brian Wilson. He had the same kind of look, same kind of demeanor, same kind of abusive dad. Okay. So he was very Brian Wilson-esque. And we were staying at their place one night. And I was just developing the record idea at that time. And so I had a dream that night. Brian Wilson came to me in my dream. And in my dream, he was listening to the previous record I had done, which is called Hollywood Free For All. And um, he's listening to it. And he goes... You know, there's some good songs on here, but uh, I don't think there's ever going to be a hit record with that voice. <laughs> Pretty much back to what you're saying. <laughs> and the, in the dream, I go, oh, really? Well, you know, because I was actually thinking for my next record, maybe not singing so much and getting my other, my other friends to come in and sing it. <laughs> and really patronizingly in the dream, <laughs> Brian Wilson goes, yeah, that would be a good idea. <laughs> Oh, man. <laughs> and I woke up right after that laughing because I wasn't sure if I was going to do it because, you know, it's kind of awkward to ask your friends for favors and stuff. And I was like, right. should I do this? And then I went, who am I to argue with dreamed Brian Wilson telling me how to do this record? So that's it. It's settled. I'm calling Paul Tompkins. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Brian Wilson oh. came to me in a dream, told me I'm not a good singer. And you know what? I can't disagree with him. <laughs> That's how right he is about music, that even <laughs> dream yeah, yeah, yeah. Brian Wilson apparition appearing to you still knows what he's talking about. <laughs> Got it, Justin. <laughs> Evan, this has been an absolute delight. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, You're what's very the best welcome. way for people to get hold of you? Are you on the socials? What's the best way? Yes, I um I am technically on Instagram, but uh I usually I don't check it that much. It's usually my wife is checking it because uh she's the one who set it up for me. But I mm. if, uh am on Twitter. That's my main social media thing lately, is th that will actually be me. Find me on Twitter. And uh, yes, by all means, please visit my Bandcamp page. I am, I have been trying to, you know, get a little more headway with my my own albums. It's hard. I never, I never uh, promote them. It's because that's the other problem with working all the time. You know, you're working, you barely have time to record a record, let alone, t you know, tour on it or play live or put a band together. I tried it with Witching Hour. We did it for a little bit. It was very difficult to keep it. I was like 20 people in the band and everything. It's a big production. Mm. But um, uh, but um, there's free stuff there and Witching Hour. There's other Halloween-appropriate stuff and other non-Halloween stuff. So, and and for, yeah. the, for the benefit of, of my audience, would you spell your name for oh, us? Oh, yes, yes. It's E-B like boy, A-N. And the last name is Schletter, S-C-H-L-E-T-T-E-R. All right. Well, 
thank you so much for doing this. And oh, you're very uh, welcome. It's lovely. Be best of luck with with the future projects and. Uh, Got got a big fan here, and hopefully you'll you'll have some more big fans oh, uh, once hope. this Thank comes out. Much. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Spin the wheel, spin the wheel, spin the wheel of Randy. Spin the wheel, spin the wheel, spin the wheel of Randy.